Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. And so when I reached out there initially, I was told that their policy was to collect DNA upon release. So if these people were ever released, they would they would collect their DNA on the way out, which what? was ridiculous because number one, some of them will never get out. Okay. Some of them will live, they'll die yeah. out there. Um, and I actually identified several that had, I think there were nine that I identified that died out there. But also, I mean, what about cold cases? You know, why should somebody have to wait for another 10, 20, 30 years in order to find out if, if a, a case could be resolved? You know, why should this, the taxpayers be paying for a detective like myself to spin her wheels for years and years and years working on a case that could have been solved already? So, oh, yeah. Uh, That's crazy. Basically, yeah, they kind of told me to pound sand initially. I mean, they were just not, they didn't want to hear it when I called out there at first. So then I got, the attorney general's office involved, got the head of the sexually violent predator unit at the attorney general's office to contact them and uh, explain to them <laughs> the importance of collecting DNA now, not when they get released. So eventually they collected from everybody that was still out there. And it, I mean, the whole process took close to two years. I mean, it's ridiculous how long it took, but they finally swabbed everybody. There were a couple guys out there that refused to give a sample. And so the attorney general's office basically had to go to court and file motions to compel them to give a sample. But what resulted from that effort was one of the guys that was swabbed, his DNA ended up going into CODIS and he hit to an unsolved rape and murder in a neighboring jurisdiction here in Washington state. And that was a crime that occurred in 1980. And it was still unsolved. The detective who had been working the case for the past 12 years had never heard this guy's name before. He never came up in the case. He wasn't in the case file. Uh, this detective had spent hundreds of hours spinning his wheels, swabbing people, trying to solve this case because they had DNA with no luck. And there he was. He had been sitting out there since 2000 and he came from prison. So he went from prison to out there, nobody ever collected his DNA. That's crazy. It, it's it's I mean, crazy, that's... but it's at this point, like nothing surprises me, honestly. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, though, that's that's at the same level of, you know, like what you said in, in the the time that we spoke earlier when, you know, on the on the other episodes of the podcast. And when you said you found out that Ted Bundy's DNA wasn't in the CODIS database and you're like, well, of of all the people, I mean, that's what the CODIS database was yeah. for, was for these uh, potentially recurring crimes and people that are are most likely to have committed multiple crimes. In multiple jurisdictions. That drives me crazy. I mean, as a businessman, that drives me crazy. I mean, that that's equivalent of, you know, one department not telling the other department that product's ready to ship. Right. And so everybody's just sitting around and, and they're, you know, the the... It's not like the dollar signs ever stop. Right. You know, they're they're constantly moving, right. and uh, you know the the resources that were wasted. Like you said, that detective spent hundreds of hours mm -hmm. when 
had somebody just walked down there and taken a Q-tip and rubbed it on the inside of his mouth. Right. And then submitted it, submitted it to the lab. It's not like, you know, getting a buckle swab is difficult. I, I, I understand some of the ones that, that refuse to, which is amazing because I, dude, you're in prison. I'm going to take your DNA one way or another. Well, and that, that whole collecting DNA upon release, I mean, that's kind of an old school methodology. I think prisons used to do that when the, the DNA is first, DNA laws first were enacted in a lot of states you know, prisons would do that. You know, they would just collect on the way out just to you know, make sure we got it kind of a thing. But I mean, that is ridiculous. First of all, do you really want to collect a DNA sample from somebody that's wanted on another murder case and let them out <laughs> only to then get a yeah. hit however many months later and then have to go find them again? You got to go find the guy and again. Hope they didn't commit Jeez. another atrocity while they were released. Uh, how many of those times, yeah, you know, you hear about these, um, like these no bail types when you know they're they're in for a heinous crime right and yet they're released almost as fast as the ink is drying and then they immediately go out and i mean if they know they're guilty and there's so much evidence that the detectives have against them right and yet they're back on on the street they have nothing to lose Mm -hmm. to go commit another crime and so you know get rid of witnesses there's all sorts of danger that 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 well and you know, there are, uh, there's one case that I'm familiar with just from reading about it. And it's, it was absolutely horrendous because this guy was in prison for over 30 years, never had his DNA collected. When he got paroled, he went to serve time in another state. And so they collected his DNA upon entry into that state's prison after 30 some years of being in, in custody. Once they collected his, his DNA in Oregon, his DNA hit to a whole series of different murders in in two different states. And one of the murders his, his DNA hit to was a murder case that had already been solved and a woman had served over 30 years in prison for the crime. And she was subsequently exonerated yes. as a result of his DNA hitting to that crime scene. So yeah. I mean, you know, it's both sides of the coin here. You know, the CODIS database was created for a reason. We just have to use it. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, especially when it comes to DNA, that, you know, obviously the MVAC system is on the front end of collecting from the evidence. Mm -hmm. But even, even if you get DNA from the evidence, you have to have something to compare it to. Exactly. And again, if you, if you look back at, how many people are actually committing the majority of these major crimes? It's it's not, you know, there's what, 330 million people in, in the United States? Mm-hmm. It's, so it's such a small, you know, maybe 10, 20,000 people that are creating the majority of the, of the crime in, in the country. Yeah. And so when you actually catch them, you know, take advantage of that. Who knows how many cases you can solve? Right. And... I understand that there's probably not a, a lot of Ted Bundy's out there, but there are people that commit a significant amount of crime. Yep. And it's interesting when, when people, when you talk to people that have never actually had a crime committed against them, you know, they think, uh, you know, it's just a burglary. It's like, well, or, you know, a carjacking or something like that. Well, until you've actually had that experience where you've been violated in that way Mm -hmm. you know somebody breaks into your car and steals something or worst case 
you know, you're just driving down the road and then you stop at a stop sign and somebody, you know, opens your door and pulls you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, in some people's book, that's not a major crime, but I guarantee the people that, that, that experience that, uh, that's a traumatic event. Right. And, and Absolutely. If, and, yeah. Yeah. And why? Because if, if that person is a, a recurring offender, then they shouldn't be on the street. Yeah. And, you know, like, I, I am a huge advocate of giving detectives like you the tools that you need to solve these cases. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, um, you know, a little insight on the overall law enforcement industry. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, hey, well, I got you for a few more minutes. Um, yeah. I'm just going to pick one of these. Okay. And I, I know that every single one of these cases are are just so interesting. But, you know, you got Night Patrol, you got David 435, Stabbed in the Back, Your Worst Nightmare, True Evil, Fourth of July. These are all separate cases, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Sex Offender Island, we just talked about that. Um, Mud Pit, what's that one about? Mm. Yes. So that was a case that I uh, was called in to assist on. So it occurred in a neighboring jurisdiction, actually. I think it was 2014. And at the time, I was part of our child abduction response team. So I helped coordinate that for our agency. And I happened to be driving into work that morning. And I think it was August August 4th. And um, I hear on the radio this report about a little girl who was reported missing and as I'm listening to the details on the radio, I'm thinking, mm, this does not sound right. And this does not sound good. This doesn't sound like it's going to have a good ending. And so I called up one of the FBI agents that I normally worked with in Tacoma and asked him if he was aware of the case. And he didn't, had not heard about it yet. Uh, the agency had not reached out to the FBI office yet to ask for assistance. So he said, yeah, let me let me make some calls and I'll I'll call you back. And so pretty quickly after that, Myself and my commander for the CART team were requested to respond out there and, you know, basically kind of help them do an assessment and lend any any help that we could. What that ended up turning into was uh, a week straight of being out there working on this case. And it was very intense. It was the second child abduction murder case that I worked on you know, that that was fresh. I'd worked on several that were cold cases, but, you know, this was the second one that I had been on where we were boots on the ground, actively searching for this missing child, and then ultimately found her deceased. And um, so it was it was different for me because, number one, it wasn't my case. I was able to be there more kind of, kind of from a consulting perspective uh, and also from a CART perspective. So basically just, you know, helping to offer resources and um, helping to provide some organizational structure to the agency on this massive investigation. Because with any child abduction case or, you know, any kind of high profile missing child case, they are bananas. And there are always hundreds of people involved in the investigation, which is great, but trying to wrangle 500 people and making sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing and that uh, things aren't being overlooked, um, you know, that people aren't duplicating efforts, that organizationally, you know, information is flowing correctly to the right people. I mean, it's, it is quite an undertaking. So I had the luxury, I would say, in that case of, of being 
more of a third party. So I, you know, it was not me as the lead detective with that elephant on my back, so to speak. But, you know, it was still just an intense, intense week uh, being, you know, out at the command post every day, trying to make progress, you know, everyone that was involved frantically searching for this girl. Uh, And it was pretty amazing just to see the cooperation and the collaboration between all these different law enforcement agencies, the, you know, the primary agency had called in the FBI, we had detectives from my agency from, you know, a lot of detectives just self deployed and just showed up out there to assist Um, other agencies called in and said, Hey, we've got extra bodies, where can you use us? You know, hundreds of search and rescue volunteers, Red Cross, they're, you know, out there feeding people. So um, it, it was pretty spectacular. But, you know, at the end of the day, once she was recovered, then it was kind of like, okay, well, now this is a homicide investigation. And now we have to shift gears and ratchet things down because now we're not frantically searching for this missing child. But we still have to find out who killed her. So it was a, it was a very interesting case uh, for a bunch of different reasons. It, it was, a, I would say, a very contained area where she went missing from. She actually lived in a like a um, mobile home park. And so there were about 100 homes within this park. But there was a huge wooded area next to the park. So we had this, we early on, uh, very quickly, the crime lab produced DNA for us uh, from evidence at the crime scene. And so we, we had this DNA, but it didn't match anybody in, in the database. So it's like, okay, well, what do we do with this now? This is pre-investigative genetic genealogy. You know, this is like, well, I mean, we need a lead with, I mean, I don't know how many male suspects there were living in the in the trailer park, but let's just say 50. How do you narrow down 50 people? And so we did a sweep. We did a DNA collection sweep uh, within the, ter- the, the, the park. And we basically knocked on everybody's door and asked for a consensual DNA swab. Uh, from from everybody that lived there. And uh, the person who was ultimately identified was one of those people that, you know, was was contacted and asked for a swab. I don't want to go into too many details because I don't, you know, want people to know exactly how, how it happened if you want to read the book. But it was interesting, to say the least, and it was very unexpected. You know, the person that ultimately was identified as being the killer was, it was pretty shocking to everybody, not what we expected. Well, especially with child sexual assaults and things, uh, you know, you just never know. I, I mean, people that you think are fairly upstanding, uh, mm-hmm. next thing you know, they're, you know, being arrested and you're just, I, I, I think the majority of those, uh, you know, even, even child porn on the internet, things like that, it's, you're like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. I would have never saw that coming. Yeah. Um, well, all right. Well. Lindsay, it's been fantastic. Again, the book is called In My DNA. And uh, I think author Lindsay Wade. Yes. Uh, detective, uh, female woman extraordinaire. <laughs> um, oh, fantastic. I, I just, I when I first saw that title, In My DNA, I, I immediately referred back to that story you had told me about how you know, you had worked with getting Ted Bundy's DNA into uh, the database again mm-hmm. because of those original, you know, girls that were that were murdered in in Tacoma, and thought maybe that was a Ted Bundy case. But uh, and and how you solved those, but th- those uh, cases are in there too. So 
everybody needs to get this book and and read it. I think it'll be a fantastic uh, read front to cover. It'll be one of those that uh, you just can't put down. So, yeah. Uh, how how can people get your book? Well, it's available for pre-order right now on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, it's going to be available in an ebook, uh, hardcover, paperback, and audiobook. So you can also get it through Audible or whatever you know whatever platform that you use for audiobooks. So you can pre-order any of those versions now, and then it will be available on the thirtieth of this month. Fantastic. Okay. Well, good luck with that, and um, we will definitely be getting this out, and hopefully all of our listeners and and um, the people that, that see you on YouTube will uh, order the book. So Fantastic. thanks again. Yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you. Hey, we'll talk to you later. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.